North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, does the skull and bones of Yale exist, and what does that have to do with Jeffrey Epstein, if anything? (laughs) The Skull and Bones Society does exist. There's even a female counterpart, but the judge in the Ghislaine Maxwell uh, trial was a member of, I think it's called Quill and Dagger, maybe. So yeah, there have always been uh, secret societies, especially at elite American schools, They were abolished at some of them, but the ones that always had Greek life, especially, usually also always had at least several secret societies. What it has to do with Epstein is a little, it's, it's a little unclear simply because the mechanisms of power with Epstein don't have to do with straightforwardly these sort of longstanding kind of Anglo-Saxon Masonic entities or Mason-like entities, let's say. They're not the Freemasons specifically. And they're no, they're no longer religiously exclusive, right? Because admission to the Ivies, for example, is not religiously exclusive as it used to be. So 
at some of them. So with Epstein, um, Epstein works with Harvard, works with MIT, is funding things, has an office, I think at Harvard, if I remember correctly, uh, that he's given as a kind of external investor. But I think it's probably more profitable to think of universities and secret societies inside of them where those things still exist, really as connection points for investors, literally and figuratively, and for potential talent for various parts of our regime. They're not really places that you go in order to be educated. Strictly speaking, the education for someone that went to Harvard Business School is really kind of a side benefit to the connections that you get. And the existence of secret societies, or if you're if you were into biotech and you meet this, you know, guy named Jeffrey Epstein, who seemingly never did anything but has all this money to throw around because of his connections to the Maxwells, who are a part of Israeli intelligence. You meet Epstein, you know, you guys don't need to talk endlessly about biochemistry. You just need his money. And he's interested <laughs> apparently in like you know, perpetuating his line with, you know, dozens of different women. So uh, aside from all his other sexual strange activities. So that's, I mean, there are always mechanisms. I think, you know, it's, it's a mechanism to, to some other purpose. And the other purpose that the person has may, when stated aloud in broad daylight, just sound patently absurd, like Jeffrey Epstein trying to perpetuate his genetic material indefinitely. Um, it just sounds like extremely like weird, right? But I, I mean, think that is that is in the nature that? of these things. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, the island, uh, the island, Epstein's kind of least occult purpose, if you just look at publicly available information, was obtaining what you know the KGB would call compromat, compromising information on a person. So if the person is on the flight logs of this or that thing. That's kind of like a personal version of like a sketchy bank transaction to a Swiss bank account. You know, what are you doing there? And then, okay, what you're doing there is what will be at least sufficiently disclosed to us is he's engaged because these, these trials came into the public light, certainly the state of Florida before his, you know, difficulties with the federal government is that he was, he was, he, he was himself some kind of, extremely sexually depraved person that could be used in his videoed up and audioed up uh, home and uh, the premises down in the Caribbean in order for people who came to his house to be videoed, uh, recorded in all kinds of ways, doing sexually distasteful or illegal things or both, and then could thus be controlled. And that's just, that's an old intelligence tactic. I mean, that's something, honestly, that the Pinkertons that we talked about way back, the Pinkerton agency knew about people. It's a tactic that has been particularly effective, if you look at the history of different intelligence agencies, with Americans. <laughs> so, you know, there's a saying that uh, the KGB had, I think we've said this, that you know, the British were susceptible to homosexual temptation, the French to heterosexual temptation, and the Americans were susceptible to anything. <laughs> and if you look at just any number of politicians, uh, in addition to any of the other people that Epstein either knew or, or didn't know, I mean, Epstein, as far as I know, had nothing to do with Denny Hastert, 
longtime, very powerful Republican politician from Illinois, Speaker of the House at one time, who, I mean, molested teen boys when he was just a wrestling coach in a public high school before he went into politics. And that was kind of suppressed. And it later came out, but it came out after it didn't matter for his political future. So Compromat is extremely valuable. I think one of the the revelations there with the the Epstein case is the way that Israeli power functions in the United States of America, which is not in proportion to the size of the nation of Israel. But Epstein, in connection with the Maxwells in the specific case, and Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine's father, received very high honors from the state of Israel. In, in, in death, if not in life publicly, obviously, but it functions through compromising people who then owe something to you or, or owe the continuance of their, their career to you, even though the things that they're doing and have done that you have record of are very, very, very dark. So we all know that, that Epstein killed himself by breaking his own neck after right. dis- disconnecting the video system in his private cell, right? right? right. And what I'm curious yeah. about right. is, uh, did Stan- Stanley Kubrick die a similar kind of way? Uh, no. Stanley Kubrick, people will probably not generally know. They, they, you've probably seen at least one of his films. And, you know, I'm I'm finishing the Hollywood thing this week with Kubrick because I think of him as emblematic of so much and and in some ways of the best of in some ways what can be accomplished through film kubrick died rather suddenly for a man in pretty good health i mean he was he was 70 years old but he was he was in pretty good health and had no particular unique stressors okay but he died apparently of a heart attack in his sleep now that could happen but it could also not happen at all. And there was no particular warning that it was going to happen. The reason that it is thought of at all suspicious by anyone is because um, his cut of his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, which is precisely about the specifically sexual corruption of our elites um, of all kinds, legal, financial, political, media, was was not actually had not actually been released that um and and what was released was not precisely what he screened for family just before his death in march 1999 so it's a little suspicious um i would say it's less suspicious than say the death of antonine scalia who died under very odd circumstances at a sort of a secret society retreat uh, in the middle of nowhere in texas so it's less suspicious than that for sure, but it's it's a little odd. And anyone who makes a movie like Eyes Wide Shut, which we'll talk about sometime today, is going to be suspected of maybe being unpalatable to other people, especially in the film industry, because he's at least certainly in that movie and also in some others revealing something about the nature of power that maybe people in power don't want revealed. And something that I think Epstein maybe amplifies the, the willingness of the populace to not believe that people in power will protect themselves. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it, it became kind of a meme. And at that point then was just sort of a joke, but the idea that Epstein didn't kill himself is is an assertion about the difference between the reality that's projected in front of us, in this case, generally by news media, 
But ironically, in the case of Ghislaine Maxwell, because federal cases are not broadcast live like the Rittenhouse case was, that we we there are certain things that we're not allowed to see. And then what we are allowed to see is going to be explained to us very carefully, kind of very heavy heavy handedly, almost like the way like a villain is identified in a kid's movie. So in the case of Epstein, you're getting really kind of a failure of props where you don't have enough props. And then the props that you did work with just seemed completely implausible to basically everybody. Yeah, sure. He disabled the video system and then hung himself like very carefully from something that he couldn't hang himself from uh, with material he didn't have. Sure. I'm sure that happened. That's a, that's, that's a failure of artistry that is, has at least been historically uncharacteristic of them. Okay. And whatever you think happened on whatever kind of videotapes, since we've been videotaping parts of American history, some of the weird things with Biden videotapes, Biden's hand moving or body moving in strange ways or across surfaces, they can't move across in real life. All of that is, <laughs> you know, honestly, they're, they're not as good at making movies as they used to be. <laughs> is the way that I think of it. And, and Epstein is, is uh, just another case of that, that. They're really slipping in the quality of their production value. Well, is it that they just don't care, that they believe that the populace will, will and maybe they're completely right, you know, can't do anything about it? I, yeah. I think there's nothing that has made me feel more futile about my government uh, than yeah. Epstein's death. That, yeah, no, that's really interesting because I... Everything connected with Epstein made me a little more hopeful. And maybe that's just my own psychological <laughs> defective optimism. I guess so. But <laughs> yeah, right. It's just like, yeah, it's crippling this psychology of being happy. It made me hopeful that people that that certain people were recognizing other things. I think COVID did a lot more for awakening people than Epstein did. But the the phenomenon was similar in nature, if not an extent, in that it was the regime really, really failing to cover its tracks on something, on an official story, an official version of something. Something similar, honestly, is the Kennedy assassination, where they've never been able to get enormous numbers of Americans to believe the official story about a bullet reversing directions and all this kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, it's not unprecedented, but it was it was the dam breaking to a certain degree. I think COVID did a lot more in that direction. Though, yeah, I, than, I think than I'm, COVID made me more optimistic in terms of people seeing this. That's just it. Epstein, yeah, just, why, sure. the reason it's pessimistic is because it was just a blip and it's gone. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. thing is disgusting. This thing is massively uh, infiltrative. And look how they just swept it under the rug. And I, I bet you I could go yeah. and talk to my folks that don't even know his name. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think I think with these kinds of these individual cases, I mean, legal cases or or failure for there to be a legal case or or, you know, a subpar legal case, they he, someone really wasn't charged with what he should be charged with. Those are pretty easy to make disappear. I mean, I my anticipation with the Waukesha stuff is the guy's name Brooks, maybe, is that that's going to go away because his social media history of just really hating white people and then trying to kill a bunch of people in a place you knew a bunch of white people were going to be just lines up too well. I mean, they, they really don't want to 
encourage that. It's certainly not going to be, if they can help it at all, broadcast the way the Rittenhouse case was. There was a similar case like that, I think in 2015, if I remember correctly, with a black woman in Las Vegas, drove over a bunch of people. You know, that, that what I just mentioned, I think the lady's name was Lakeisha Holloway. That, I mean, people don't know that that happened mm-hmm. um, even more than they don't know that Stephen Paddock maybe, or someone else or a bunch of people shot people in Las Vegas, but even that's even farther down the memory hole than Epstein. So when the case is individual, it's very easy to make it go away. The reason that I think COVID accomplished more in this regard is because it impacted everybody's daily life. Whereas the Epstein case and whether you were tuned in or what actually happened or what, or do you remember that name? It's easy for that kind of stuff to go away. Why has Ghislaine Maxwell not gone away? <laughs> because she survived COVID. Um, that they're, they're trying to make that go away. I don't know if it's going to be entirely possible. The audio, as I may be available, I'm not entirely sure about that. I would be absolutely shocked if Ghislaine Maxwell you know, died in a prison cell in the United States of America. Because she's Israeli intelligence. Yeah. And Israel does not have an extradition treaty with us and it never has. And that is something that applies to the history of organized crime in the United States and lots of other things. It applies to Jonathan Pollard, who who did spy for Israel, was convicted, did go to prison in the United States, and now lives very happily in Israel. Um, and will never face any other kind of anything else that he could have been charged with the first time in the United States of America. So our relationship with Israel, if you actually look at the history in cases like Epstein and Pollard and Meyer Lansky and lots of other people, is that we are really, we are used by Israel. And then we're generally told that they're an ally, but functionally they, they spy on us constantly and they're, they're, they really do not benefit us as a nation state. I feel like we've had at least several Godfather potential references so far, but that would take us into Francis Ford Coppola, and that, that's not where yeah, we're going. that's not the guy I want right? to talk about. You know, right. But, you know, yeah. great, great directors of history. And, and you know, <laughs> y- you mentioned that Kubrick is not known maybe to many, but I'll tell you, um, when I was doing my, my uh, go to college, work a restaurant job, come back and watch a movie, and I watched yeah. as much as I could in a couple of years, and I watched everything by Kubrick. And everything by Scorsese, I'll put them up there as sort of like those who knew how to use film well. And he really yeah. he really did know what he was doing, right? Right. Um, so right. you mentioned a moment ago, you know, kids' movies. And speaking of kids' movies, here's Daddy. Um, the Shining. There's one to yeah. show the kids at home. My goodness, what a what a thing. <laughs> right. And don't, and don't let your children see it. And I mean, if you don't want to watch any of the movies that we talked about, that's also fine. Like, you can go read a plot synopsis somewhere. You don't... You don't need to look at all of this stuff. Um, The Shining is not Kubrick's first break. I mean, his breakout film is is sort of an anti-war World War I movie called Paths of Glory about the French army in the First World War. But The Shining is probably one of his best known, partly because Stephen King, on whose book the film is based, is himself such a popular author. But I think that... What you, can, what you can see in The Shining is Kubrick thinks of America not so much as a, of a, as a, a casino, okay? Certainly not in The Shining, uh, maybe elsewhere, but that 
a lot of our, our history and our family relationships are a history of trauma. And you get that with the things that have gone on in the hotel, which are straightforwardly what the plot is about. But you also get that with the various images of Indians with the idea that the Indians had to be killed for any of us to be here. You also get that with obviously the destruction of the family unit that takes place over the course of the movie as they continue to inhabit the hotel, right? And the madness of the father. This is not actually unique to Hollywood. It might be totally subversive and destructive. It might not be. It really depends on what you do with what you think Kubrick is trying to do. This is pretty old. The very first popular American novel, Wieland, using the name of a German author of the time, but written by a Quaker named Charles Brockton Brown, is about a father killing his family because God told him to. So the idea that this is a land of peculiar violence and peculiar destruction is an old one. The Shining is therefore, and I put it in our notes that we're using as a question, The Shining raises the question whether horror is the defining American genre, right? If you compare our cinema to whether Hollywood or independent to cinemas of other countries, is horror one of our defining genres? I, I think we have produced not only more of it, but more of it more definitively in any of the subgenres you can identify. Horror is incredibly American to talk about, to think about, to produce, to look at. And the idea that you would consume tons of it or that the 1980s would almost be defined (laughs) by the horror genre is partly due to The Shining, but I think it's also partly The Shining picking up on something that is a lot older even than film, but also a lot more of it came out of the success of The Shining as an individual film. Plenty of room in the Hotel California. I I really do think there's something to that. the land of peculiar violence really also, uh, you know, a haunted land. Uh, yeah. is, is that post-colonialism at root in us? It, what White guilt, I think, is something that's out there, too. Um, but it, I don't know. I, you, you can I, I think, those. Well, yeah. So the, the post-colonial thing, I think that that is that is something that is something to think about when you're thinking about specific settler populations you can't really maintain these two things. You can't maintain simultaneously that all white people are responsible for our guilt and also that we are a nation of immigrants (laughs) because there are just simply chronological cutoffs on some of this stuff. If you are from generally some kind of immigrant population, that is, you weren't the first generation of Americans in any one given place, then you really have nothing to do with any of the warfare that had to take place to make that place part of America. Whether you're talking about a part of a place that they intended to be part of America, like, I don't know, Kentucky, or a place that no one intended to be part of America at first, like Utah. If you came there later, the assertion that you are racially responsible or have even any kind of ethnic, not even responsibility, but even a memory of settlement and the violence that settlement entailed, you you can't really do both of those things at the same time. Notice that our regime tries to do both. We are a nation of immigrants. Remember when your grandpa came here from Italy, but also we're a nation of white guilt. Remember when somebody, not actually your grandpa 400 years earlier, killed some guy that wasn't white. 
you know, like you can't do both of those things at the same time. I, I do think, and this is, this is not really, I mean, this is not really about the shining specifically. There, there is no question that if you are faced with massive warfare against another group that is going to affect you somehow. I mean, that just, that's, that's boring is how true that statement is, how you explain that to yourself, what you do with the fact that that was required. I don't, the difference between that and what is generally going to be called post-colonialism, what I just said is I don't believe that that's unique and therefore that whites are uniquely evil. Yeah. Yeah. I, that I, happens. I, that happens in every society that's ever existed. I, I think the tying of it to race is nonsensical. I, I think the idea that there is a a sort of blood guilt haunting the society right. is pretty evident. And then the idea that horror would be our preferred dream, therefore, uh, is perhaps very insightful. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I think I think that blood guilt haunting or haunting as a way of thinking about the past applies even where it's not actually racially divided. Yes. So Southern Gothic as a literary, but also as a film genre exists, not even so much, this might be surprising to listeners, it doesn't generally exist actually as an assertion about Black-white relations. Southern Gothic exists because of the nature of how you relate to the past in a society where you're settled. I mean, I... I would, I would say that partly because I grew up in such a settled old part of the country, I think about the past as, as both a heritage that is tangible, but also as a haunting because they're, they're all there, you know, and maybe if I had grown up in, I don't know, Phoenix, it wouldn't feel the same way to me. So, yeah, I think, I think the idea of horror, and this is why I horror as a genre can in many ways be a reactionary, not a liberal or progressive genre is because it is not just an assertion, I think, lazily about, you know, white people are responsible for every evil thing that happened in the past. It's an assertion that the past matters maybe more than the present and certainly more than the future. I can agree with that. But that also uh, that also obtains when the past is evil or at least mixed, as of course it always is. It, it, what, the thing I wonder is why one would watch horror. Uh, what is what is the goal of the horror? Not to yeah. quote another Scorsese movie, but right? Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah, yeah. And I, I think I mean, and that's why I'm saying, like, you know, you don't have to watch anything that we're talking about if you don't want to. But then, I mean, it applies to reading it. It, it applies to like, what is what is the obsession with being haunted? Right? Yeah, what, what, yeah. I, well. Something something akin to horror comes up in in novels in the 19th century, the very well, very end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, in what's going to be called the Gothic novel, and it is a corrective within the history of you know various European and American literatures. Gothic and the novel that I mentioned by Charles Brockton Brown is kind of taken as the first American, not only the first American but the first American Gothic novel. It's a corrective to an, abs- an, an overestimation of human capacity because the 18th century is a time of much greater optimism about human beings and their capacities for reason and justice and, and peaceableness. And the shock of the French Revolution is not just that you change from a uh, hereditary monarchy to a 
supposed democratic republic. Okay, that's part of it. And that's that's a political science debate. The shock for most people and the way that it's used and discussed in America by the Federalists or in Britain by the Tories is look at the gruesome things these people do. So look at what the children of light, look at what darkness the children of light engage in. And I think horror is useful in that regard, right? Whether it's in film or, or literature or painting with Goya depicting partly the violence of the Napoleonic Wars, look at what the supposed children of light or people who are supposed to be capable of better things, look at what they actually do. Horror is not, therefore, just a fantasy genre. I think it's, it may be a projection, like a use of fantasy as a genre. But, you know, the, it, is, it is only fantasy to the extent that Mordor is a depiction of, yeah. you know, industrialized countries. Yeah. Uh, it's a projection of history into fantasy, not the other way around. So I think it's important then for the sake of the conversation to distinguish our, your use of horror from, say, just the scream flick. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And, I, and, and honestly, I've never been into those things, right? Like slashers, you know. Anything or anything farther than that, gore. You know, I, I, I just, I honestly haven't even watched it. And I don't have any interest in it yeah. because the idea of simply seeing violence for its own sake, right, is not interesting, right. Yeah. And so that's where, like, I think if you went and looked for the movies in category, I'm not even sure if The Shining might show up in horror, but it, it, definitely the screen flick is what dominates that that genre. And now the way you're talking about it a little bit, it's like pre dystopia. Uh, the, the dystopia is a form of of horror, it's it's a way of trying to uh, counteract uh, the the forward projection nostalgia of humankind's ability to make great futures, and to challenge that with what a, a solid dose of of reality, even if it's right. fantastically done. Right, right, exactly. And I, I think I think that 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 capacity and the capacity for critique is really what I think Kubrick does well in The Shining, but he does well in, in anything that he does. And that goes all the way back to where and how he gets his start, which is really in photography, strictly speaking, not even cinematography, let alone directing, that he starts out following this guy. You, you may want to look up. You probably haven't heard of him. He went by the name Ouija. <laughs> like um, W-E-E. G-E-E, but his, you know, legal name was Arthur Felig. And Ouija was one of the first, what you would call a freelance photographers. So he had this apparently uncanny instinct for knowing when and how things were going on in New York City. And he would show up and take photos and then, you know, send them off to, you know, newspapers and magazines and stuff. And Ouija is, is, Kub is a young Kubrick who grows up, I, I believe in the Bronx. He is, he is Kubrick's mentor, as it were, in photography. What, what is photography capable of? And so Kubrick comes into photography, strictly speaking, through someone who's engaged in what's called the news media. And I know that people look back and they say like, I remember when Walter Conkright just, just told it like it was, you know, uh, that's the world as it is today, you know. And that never would have been Kubrick's own perspective. And in fact, if you read, there's, there's a, a really great book that's a collection of interviews of Kubrick, fortunately made too far before his death to be useful for, say, like understanding Eyes Wide Shut. But Kubrick himself never saw 
images as neutral recordings, which I think is one of people's worst misconceptions about all kinds of things, including history, that there was ever a, a medium of neutral recording. And so he gets in through this guy who's ostensibly news media, but is already teaching him like the stuff that you're going to get paid for is the stuff that is interesting or insightful or whatever. And that is not necessarily like the perspective of the man on the street. So if you're going to be able to get really up close, or you're going to be able to get like a really strange angle that no man on the street would ever get, because who's going to stand behind a car sitting in the middle of the street while it's running, you know, in traffic, but I'm going to do that so that I can get this perspective. That's what's going to sell. Then Kubrick already understands from the, from the jump that photography is a creative medium, that the image is creative. It is itself creatively produced in the same way that painting and literature and sculpture are. But in addition to being creatively produced, it is also a storytelling medium, even alone and as a still. So Kubrick has this interest, both personally doing it, but also, especially in photographing it, in boxing as a young man, really into boxing. Okay. And so he takes these amazing, still beautiful photos of boxers and boxing action. I mean, boxing was huge in the 40s and 50s when he's growing up in a way that it's really kind of hard for us to understand. But this is what's going to get him into magazines, some of which don't exist anymore, but that will, that is what is going to get him lucrative assignments. And so he starts in things like sports photography, which he originally, he just wants to get paid so that he has time to play chess, <laughs> but that's going to eventually become its own thing. And then he's going to get paid to take pictures of jazz musicians and paid to, to, to create photo essays uh, which is a genre that we don't exactly have, but go look for his uh, photo essay, Chicago City of Extremes, which I think you can find in its entirety online. While he's doing this, this is all stills, he becomes, of course, interested in cinema because that's really kind of the next step. I mean, it's like when you realize that words are powerful and you're like, okay, well, let me write a paragraph. Well, then eventually, I guarantee you, if you care enough about words, you'll get interested in poetry because you're going to begin to think, how can I carry the beauty that I've experienced in this kind of more primitive or more basic or more popular, but not refined way to a more refined, more interesting, more expressive medium. Right. So he's going to movies constantly. And the thing that he really benefits from is that, you know, prior to the age of streaming, you do need to move to somewhere that you can see certain movies. And Kubrick is, is different from the first producer's, except maybe the very earliest generation, say like D.W. Griffith, most producers and directors in Hollywood from, you know, of let's say the golden age, uh, this 20s to 50s, maybe everything is in-house. Their training is in-house. Their knowledge is in-house. Kubrick grows up in New York after the Second World War. He can see movies from all over the world anytime he wants, if he's willing to go to the right theater in Manhattan, generally. So he is exposed to, Soviet film and French film and German film and British film and American films you can't see anywhere else in America because the movie theaters don't want to release them because they're too, you know, boring or weird or it's, you know, two hours of Andy Warhol giving you like a time lapse of an image of the Empire State Building. I mean, it's just <laughs> stuff you're only interested in if you love the medium for itself. It sounds like the opening in 2001, honestly. 
Yeah, right? So what's going on is he's going to end up uh, having a sense of what a film can be that is different, not from everyone in his generation, but certainly from the generations that preceded him as directors. This will eventually, once his movies get picked up, partly through notice by people working in news media in New York, because New York is always the center of ostensibly nonfiction media, as Hollywood is the center of obviously fictional uh, media. Through that kind of interplay between those two forms, he's eventually going to get, he's going to meet some people who are involved in Hollywood, who are in and out of New York, and that's eventually going to get him uh, his first films. But prior to that, he's going to break in basically through photography and just and just basically trying to make as much money as he possibly cobbling together his own money in order to make his his first experimental films. Which is, you said, Paths of Glory? Paths of Glory is his first Hollywood thing um, that's going to make any kind of money. His first, his first movie that anyone in Hollywood sees but doesn't fund, the first feature film is a, is a movie called Fear and Desire, which is also about war. There's, there is an obsession with war in basically all of his movies. And it's, it's not about war as just like sort of he's interested in the military history details. Fear and Desire is about GIs. And you can see why, according to the production code in 1953, Hollywood would not release this. GIs, it's not portrayed, but it's obvious from the movie that they, they rape this young woman in Italy. Okay. And showing that, just showing that it happened, not showing anything like it on film is an exploration of what's, you know, what happens with soldiers in war? What do, what kind of forces does war unleash in human beings that he'll look at also in Paths of Glory and also in Full Metal Jacket, but in Fear and Desire, he's doing at a very low budget level, you know, by our standards, extremely circumspectly. But those are the kinds of things he's interested in. So he's, he's always interested in things that Hollywood is not particularly interested in producing, which is going to lead eventually to just him physically distancing himself as much as he possibly can from Hollywood. Now, the one thing that I think would stand out as a major exception to that is Spartacus, right? Yeah, so... I mean, is that, what, is he deal- just doing that because that's what he has to do to make a living? And that's, I mean, that's a, if there's a movie, anyone that listens to this should go watch in his list. <laughs> I mean, I am Spartacus, man. That, that is a, that is a film. Yeah. So Spartacus is a little different than most of what he does and that it's not his idea. Ah, um, that's that is, yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's Kirk Douglas's idea because they, I mean, Douglas is the star of Paths of Glory. So it's a very Kubrick film in the size, in the ambition, the obsession with historical detail. Kubrick loved every element of making movies. I mean, sometimes he ran the cameras himself, which would be unthinkable for most Hollywood directors. He just, he loved photography. He loved the costumes. He loved the research. He would do research like a lot of historians do for books in order to produce most of these movies. Probably very few people knew as much about 18th century England as Stanley Kubrick in order to make Barry Lyndon. So yeah, I mean, Spartacus is a great film. But it's not his idea. Right. And, but so it's, it's not really going to show his, you. It's it, not going to show you who he is. Then no, it, it's early enough in his career that he still. You and I both understand this. Uh, you know, at a before a certain point, you have to do things in order to be seen or to support yourself. After a while, you can be choosier. 
Spartacus is before he can be choosy. Does <laughs> does the treasure of Sierra Madre fall into that category as well? Ah, uh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then Clockwork Orange is when he's like, "I'm on it. This is what I want to do." That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm the the year itself is failing me, but it's before 1968, which is when 2001: A Space Odyssey comes out. That Kubrick is going to move less, and then more, and more, and then finally entirely to England. And there are various reasons for this, but I th- the concept of physical distance really does matter here. He has to live somewhere that you can produce English speaking films because he is an American director and he has, you know, he's not Roman Polanski. So he has no, uh, you know, legal reason to avoid being in America physically. Um, (laughs) But so he needs to live somewhere that you can produce English speaking films that that limits your choices. England is a much lower budget and place to make films than, than Hollywood, even in the sixties. And you get enormous tax breaks if you use a certain percentage of British actors and film it in Britain. So he's good to go in that regard. He doesn't, he, he he does not find New York, his native city conducive to raising a family. He finds it too violent and chaotic, uh, even by the early sixties. And he despises Hollywood always for reasons that I think are clear. If you watch sunset Boulevard or Chinatown, which are not his movies, or if you watched Mulholland drive, uh, which is also explicitly about Hollywood, which is a Lynch film, but you don't need to really watch those. You can just find Kubrick talking in interviews about Hollywood. He, he doesn't, he finds it to be a place full of people who are generally horrible people. And that will be reflected in a movie set in New York, which is his last film, Eyes Wide Shut. But it's always his view of what we might think of as, as our own elites. He's not himself a participant in these, let's say, networks of power, certainly not in the way that he could have been for the success that he enjoyed. Because unlike David Lynch, he's enormously commercially successful. Not always, but, but generally commercially successful. So he has power and influence that a director like Lynch never had and and doesn't have um, even as successful as Lynch has been, but he wants to avoid Hollywood. So he ends up buying an estate in relatively rural England within, within reach of London and living there the vast majority of his career by his choice in order to keep making English language movies but in order to be as far from Hollywood as he can possibly be. So, so this maybe is connected to the American dream. Like the American dream is to get as far away from everything as you can. And eventually that means yeah, so, America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's interesting because I, the American dream I think is something that cannot exist as a phrase or as a conception, generally very materialistic without Hollywood. It wasn't used by pioneers or by settlers or even by immigrants necessarily in the 19th century when they did come here in order to better their lives and have more freedom and have more space and have more land. It is a phrase that is used increasingly after the second world war for America, but it, it, I think it is one of these things that is projected onto America. It is much less mirror than it is projector. And Kubrick has actually no antipathy to the United States as a country. So he doesn't identify Hollywood with America he can't really make movies and live in like Dayton, Ohio. So he doesn't. 
Um, and maybe if he were a young man today, that would be very different than it is, but he couldn't then. So his choices are basically London, New York, or Hollywood, and he chooses London because it's a safe, calm, peaceful place, at least when he settles there or outside of there to live and also to be able to make to make films. That's his choice. He's, he actually famously kept up on things like baseball and uh, no objection to him. He wasn't in that sense, like an Anglophile, right? He <laughs> didn't alter his accent to sound more British or something. It was kind of a business decision combined with a family decision to raise his children in a, in a peaceful place where film production was also possible. So that's the choice that he makes. I think, therefore, he doesn't see the American dream as quite the reality. So the films that are set in America are not, they're, they're not about the pursuit of the American dream or, or even people being disappointed in pursuing the American dream. They're about things like violence or when peaceful do, people do have peaceful, kind, good lives, thinking of the marriage, at least at the beginning of Eyes Wide Shut, that will be subverted by powerful elements present in America, but not identical to, let's say, the general American populace. And that, that's a very strange thing then. So he's trying to escape the very thing he's projecting onto the soul of the, the country. Yeah, I think, I think that the, the, the presence of violence, let's say, in The Shining or in Full Metal Jacket, I think he's trying to do it as mirror right? I think that if it, if it weren't mirror at all, I'm just, I'm saying this as somebody who works with words, right? So when I talk, whether live or on the internet or whatever, the reason that anyone listens is because it has some, it's, I am not entirely creating. I might be making you aware of something new. I might be leading you to think about something in a new way, conjuring up emotions you haven't felt in a long time. All of that is possible. None of it is entirely possible without something already being there inside of you that at least resonates with what I'm saying in some way, or I'm putting two things together that you had, but hadn't put together. Right. I, I, I am not purely making things out of nothing. That is not a capacity that a human artist has. So I think if the movie has some purchase, it is not solely because it is projected onto us. The question is always, what degree of projection is there? And I think the danger in movies and the danger in watching a Kubrick film is what it will do to you. Yeah. I, I don't think A Clockwork Orange made people less violent. No. Right. And Eyes Wide Shut is not going to make you less lascivious than you already are, even if you watch the, you know, the, the theater version rather than the director's cut. So if you have to watch something, watch Spartacus or, or watch... Actually, you know, this is just, this is, <laughs> I want to talk about the occult, but let's do esoteric before we do occult. Uh, this is just film esoterica. I think Barry Lyndon is his best film. It's also the one that is most forgotten and longest, and that's probably why. But um, that one is not going to probably like, uh, you know, destroy the lamp of the body if you watch it. Um, How's One Eyed Jacks? I've never seen One Eyed Jacks. I haven't seen that either. Uh, I haven't seen them all. I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't, I've never had the capacity for fandom that would allow me right. to watch every, all, all the entire catalog of anyone. Right, right. So Barry Lyndon, um, that does look interesting. I'll, I've never seen that one. The, uh, the cover does look kind of cool though. No question. Yeah. And it, it's, it's an, it's an adaptation, strangely, of a 19th century novel about the 18th century, but it is about 
the desire to strive, not in America, but in Britain, and what you leave behind, and uh, what you gain, and then also what you lose that you did gain. And uh, it's about war and, and love, and it's extremely long, but I, I find extremely interesting and, and really beautiful. I mean, he sought certain effects of light that he thought would only be possible under candlelight in order to reach some kind of authenticity about the 18th century. So, Yeah, yeah. Okay, and let's let's just mention that Doctor Strange Love exists, and and then we'll go to Christmas time with Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah, because I mean I, I'm skipping over what I think are some of the more hackneyed ones. Although Doctor Strange Love is great and entertaining if you've never seen it before, but I think one of his probably his most intriguing, not best, but intriguing film is his last one, Eyes Wide Shut, and it is because it contains certain things extremely important to him uh, as a human being. And also I think important to understanding the history of Hollywood. So let me do the stuff important to him, which is those two things. Those categories are not the same. Stanley Kubrick was despite an ostensibly Jewish upbringing, absolutely loved Christmas, had enormous Christmas trees, several of them in his home every year at Christmas time. He was married to um, a German woman, Christiana. The nature of his religious views is sort of like Abraham Lincoln. It's utterly debatable. And so it's not really clear what he believed religiously. He absolutely loved Christmas. I mean, not eschewing, you know, images of Christ even. I mean, it's not just Christmas trees that he loves. So, you know, that just leave it up in the air because I, I don't know where it is. And if the listener knows more, he's welcome to enlighten me um, and tell me he was definitely an, an atheist or definitely he wasn't a devout Jew. No one actually thinks that, but what he was, I think is up for debate. He absolutely loved Christmas. There are two different worlds in eyes wide shut that match up with these two different categories that are respectively things Kubrick loved for himself and things that he wanted to maintain about the nature of the occult and the nature of power in the United States. In the above world that Bill and Alice live in are all the things that Kubrick loves. There are in almost all the shots of the above world, and this is why Eyes Wide Shut is, I'm not maintaining this just to be kind of edgy. It is a Christmas movie. It's a movie about Christmas time. Very similar, I think, in this way to It's a Wonderful Life. In the above world are lots of soft Christmas lights, Christmas trees. There is marital love and marital making love, there are children. And in that world, things are generally pretty well lit and above board. And when they're not well lit, there are Christmas lights visible either directly like behind uh, whatever is foregrounded or kind of shining onto what is foregrounded. And in that world, there are some people that you will later find in the underworld and there are revelations about those people, including about Bill that you will find in the underworld. But there are some things like children that you will not find in the underworld. And in addition to Christmas trees, Kubrick was by his daughter's own testimony and everyone who knew him, their testimony. He loved children generally and his children specifically. So on a personal level, that gets reflected in the above world and eyes wide shut in a way that you know, if you've listened to 
any of our episodes on Hollywood or you read any of the things that we've referenced, you know, has not been the case. Hollywood is a place that, you know, watch Mulholland Drive. This is a place that chews up and spits out the young. It, it devours families and children, lots of divorces, infidelities. Those things, characteristic of the history of Hollywood, are found in Eyes Wide Shut in the underworld. Now, the underworld is a place that Bill reaches through his credentials in the above world. He actually gets trusted and gets to sneak into places even without sufficient coverage because of his credentials as a doctor. So because of his belonging, at least peripherally, to some kind of elite and being invited to certain parties where you can, if you watch the lighting in the movie, can actually, you can see that it's halfway between well-lit and not lit at all, which is the way it goes when you're in the underworld. It's, it's not lit at all, or if it is lit, it's lit extremely harshly. The presence of kind of medium intensity lighting is in these in-between times, like the party that they go to, where they're both tempted in different ways, Bill and Alice, to adultery. Bill slips in through those medium lit places and also through uh, a character that is recognized by Jewish film critics, but not by anybody else as Jewish because there's nothing about his religion or something, but he's played by a Jewish character, a Jewish actor, and other people say he's Jewish. Michael Herr, Kubrick's one of his best friends, also Jewish, said he was Jewish, Ziegler. Ziegler is one of the gateways that Bill has. So through personal contacts, he comes into a way that he can get into the underworld. In the underworld, everything is reversed. So women, instead of being united to one man, as Alice is to Bill, are common. And everyone is actually common to everyone else in the sexual rituals that take place behind masks <laughs> uh, in Over the this eyes, mansion. not over the mouth, right? Yeah, 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 over the eyes. Yeah, and the costume is not a carnival. It, it is not a Christmas costume. Um, as you know, somebody might dress up as Santa or you might take your kid to see somebody dressed up as Santa. The costumes are for adults and the costumes are reminiscent, not of Christmas, but of carnival mm -hmm. in Venice where all bets are off and all fidelities are off and children don't go to that kind of carnival. So there are no children. There are adults. They are in costumes. If there are children, and this is not at the mansion where the orgy takes place, but this is inside the costume shop when Bill has to return his costume, there are overseas businessmen from Japan, and they are in costumes, and they request to have sex with the daughter of the owner of the costume shop, who acts outraged, but who then sells her to them. And Bill just kind of watches this. But what's happening at that point in the movie, which is much later than Bill's first encounter with the underworld, is that he has begun to see how in a place that was formerly, which is just New York in the daytime at Christmas time, a place that was formerly familiar to him now is a place where the underworld is starting to kind of creep up into the above world. And now even the family relationship can be sold for money and violated. And those fidelities can dissolve the way they do when they did for him the first time when he's tempted to, you know, sex with women who are not his wife in his very first entry into the underworld. 
I find it fascinating that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman got divorced after making this movie. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it, it really, really is something. You know? I, I don't I don't have an explanation for that, but it is something that is remarkable that they are married when they make the movie. And that so the movie is for the actors less like acting than most movies are for actors. The temptation to have sex with other people is a temptation to people who are actually married to each other, actually, and in, in, in addition to pretending to be. And after this, the very thing that the movie wants not to have happened to Bill and Alice happens to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just stunning. Um, Hollywood as sale of children to the occult then sounds like the theme. Yeah. And I, I think that this has to do partly with mirror and partly with projection. So the, the division between the world above and the world below is, and, and the way that those things slip into and out of each other, the way that the world of, of light and of Christmas calls you back and the way that the world of darkness and carnival calls you back to itself or calls you down to itself. If you've never been there before that, that really is mirror. And that is the excellence of the film because it's not just true of Americans. It's true of humans generally that they are pulled between these things, but there is an element of projection here. And that is the danger of the film. And that is really the danger of realizing any of these things or thinking about them is that Kubrick is not only saying that this is a struggle that like Bill and Alice have, that they're pulled between loyalties and they're, they're pulled between being the people they should be. And, and then wanting to be people that they know they shouldn't be, but they still want to be those people that they know they shouldn't be. But he's also saying that this is systemic, that the systemic problem that we have is not racism or something generally. The systemic problem that we have is that the people who are most powerful, the people who can in the film, as Ziegler does, just get rid of other human beings, both literally in ending their lives and also figuratively in getting rid of them as a problem for the lives of the powerful, that those people are enslaved themselves to passions that are ritualized in occult forms, maybe in Satanism, maybe in something else, ritualized perhaps in occult forms, but make those people, those powerful people themselves subject. Because the insight of looking at this, not through Ziegler, who is just in power and in the underworld and happy with it, but through Bill, is that you begin to see how these things control a man in addition to being enticing to him. And this is why explaining how something came to be through certain powerful agencies is never entirely sufficient. I think if you claim to be a Christian, because it doesn't account for the way that demonic or satanic or dark or underworld things, not only how people use those things, but how those people, even very powerful people are used by them because in, he could Kubrick sh could have shot it from the perspective of Ziegler. Instead, he does this really weird scene where certain things are present, depending on the camera angle in this encounter between Bill and Ziegler, depending on whether if you reference it, if you just stop that scene, watch it, and then reference it with the rest of the movie, there's one angle for when Ziegler's actually telling the truth. And then there's another angle for when he's not telling the truth. 
but you have to like watch the rest of the movie maybe over again in order to pick up on what's going on in that specific scene where the camera angle changes, but it's just really Ziegler talking. He could have done that because Ziegler himself is divided. I mean, he sometimes tells the truth and he sometimes does it. He does it through Bill so that you can see the process of being taken over by something. So rather than showing you someone so firmly in the grasp of quote power, which is really not only to have power oneself, the power to make other people disappear, but also the power to be conquered by your passions, by your lust, by your greed, by your whatever. He doesn't show you somebody who doesn't even, can't even tell the difference between himself and being conquered. He shows you someone who is about to be conquered. And that's Bill. Because Bill actually remembers what it's like to live above ground in the light, right? Where the Christmas trees are. So I think that is an extremely powerful move just in how the script was written and then how the movie is shot that you actually, you see what the powerful have left behind in being able to live in the world during the daytime when the city is lit up for Christmas. So making the case then that this movie is a extremely well-filmed insight into the problem of Hollywood and it's a blip on the radar. It does nothing to the, the culture. It's gone. It's over. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because it's now, what, 21, 22 years old. And things then have to, works of art, and I think anything that you or I say or anything that anyone wants to propagate have to be propagated as ideas. I mean, most human beings are not actually set up to hear or see an idea maybe once or twice and then have it impact the rest of their lives. But that's not most people. Most people are going to work off ritualized forms of existence, okay, where things are repeated ad nauseum. Our, our news media understands this extremely well. So it would have to be played over and over and over again and explained over and over and over again. And maybe people can do this with this specific episode <laughs> if they want to. But the point is, human beings function off ritual. And that is something else that you see is that although Christmas is its own ritual, the rituals keep getting interrupting in Eyes Wide Shut by the underworld, which has its own rituals, which are rituals of humiliation and shame, but also rituals of enticement and power. And so that's all attractive and intriguing and interesting. And Bill will go to great lengths to get to those rituals. So the insight here is if you want something to remain, to be preserved, it needs somehow eventually to become a ritual for almost everybody. And if it is, then it probably will actually endure. Because if there's anything depressing about Eyes Wide Shut, it's that the whole thing continues to exist, the underworld, no matter what Bill thinks or does himself personally about it, right? Kubrick doesn't actually have a way out of this labyrinth. There is no way for him to slay the Minotaur, right? I mean, we could say, well, let's use government regulation or let's do this or let's boycott or let's do that or I'm never going to watch a movie again. That's fine. That's good. But Kubrick doesn't have a way out of that underworld. This is why I personally don't believe he was a Christian. He has nothing specifically redemptive about it, right? It's just noticing that there are these two worlds, one of which is at least associated heritage-wise with Christ, but there's no way out of them or to escape the fact that you want to be, you want to slip underneath. So 
when you say like the word occult, right, that could be a way to describe the rituals of this underworld, right? Both in the film, but also in life. That could be a way to describe what people were doing during what gets pejoratively called the satanic panic. But occult also just think about the most basic meaning of the term. It means hidden things. And in that way, it's much broader than simply rituals that people hide from other parts of society. It also means that these things are by nature things that get hidden. And if you want something to endure, you have to let evil things not be hidden, but you also have to let good things not be hidden. And I think that whether you're talking about a film, a single film from 20 some years ago, or anything that is good or redemptive, you have to make sure that it gets out because if it's hidden and it's not as enticing as the underworld and not as powerful as the underworld, then of course it will remain hidden as even the underworld doesn't remain entirely hidden to Bill. The flood we're living in right now is not of water, but of information and the hiding of everything, right? Information being drowned out and even those things which once were thought of as ritual to keep people united. Uh, and we're coming out, I think, some of us of 40 years of saying that's that's the enemy. You need mm-hmm. to get on to the new now. Um, I, I think my takeaway from all of this is to see film as a medium can't last. Like by definition, uh, it, it doesn't come back long enough. And so my opening question about film in an enlightened society, like the only way it really does something other than interrupt ritual is that you have a very, very small number of films which are intentionally chosen and watched like annually with the desire to um, remember something both good and evil, I would imagine, right? Right. Not to yeah. go back and just project sort of the perfect 1950s, you know, we, we censored everything bad out of this movie. But, uh, you know, and, and actually, as I think about it then, uh, of all of his movies, the one that probably the most uh, does this is Full Metal Jacket, in my mind, just you know, off the top of my head, I think, because because of how it it does really make you like think twice about war. Um, but I, you yeah, know, right. in that same way, um, fear and desire, you know, I just finished listening to, um, I went on a trip with my son and we listened to all of ghost of the Oz front, which is uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. You know, what was that? So nine, 10 hours on the Eastern front. And, mm-hmm. um, one of the major points that comes out of that, uh, is, uh, the rape of women by, by Germans, uh, by Russians, by Americans, by, by every, every kind of troop that was in there, they, they got to places and they did what they wanted to do. Um, right. So, you know, how, how do you remember these things as a people so as to both not, not pursue that which drags you down to it, but also to remember that those who are not like you are, are very likely to one day do these things. Right. Yeah, because I think if you get stuck in the idea that it's it's all if you get stuck where I think Kubrick was stuck when he died, which is a certain sense of futility, an assertion that there are beautiful things worth fighting for, but they will likely be sucked downward by the enticement of evil things that have a great deal more power, then you know, go ahead and remain hopeless, be glib and pessimistic. If you are aware of something better than that, if you are a Christian, for example, and you know that Christ is a mighty savior, then you need to be able to assert 
in whatever medium you think is most lasting and appropriate and by means of whatever rituals will be most effective rituals, especially for keeping human beings united to light rather than darkness, then you need not so much to be optimistic or pessimistic as simply active in promoting what is of the light and not of the darkness. There's plenty of darkness. I think the history of Hollywood is largely a promotion of darkness or at least of false lights that deceive. And so if you have a real light and it has rituals, then that's what you need to be busy about. So then, I mean, cause it is going to be Christmas time when this comes out. Um, say something about that. Christmas is an object of people's hatred maybe for religious reasons, maybe for historical reasons, even when those are absent. It's because I think a lot of people are so resigned to darkness and resigned to the world that, that Ziegler inhabits that they don't even actually believe that there is anything better, much less that there are rituals or entire groups devoted to those rituals, like the reading of you know the beginning of Luke 2, that would actually preserve some element of light in darkness. And their cynicism turns into malice against those who actually believe in the light and the coming of the light. So Christmas is especially beautiful for this reason, because it is such an assertion of light in darkness. And it's the reason that I do stuff like this podcast, because I actually believe Christmas is every day since the very first one every day is a day of divine gifts. And especially that the Lord does not look at the world the way that Hollywood has taught most of us to look at the world, which is cynically distrustingly with a hatred toward our fellow men, maybe different groups of our fellow men, but maybe even worse than that, just misanthropically, like all of our fellow men, irrespective of any other conditions, always, you know, I see bumper stickers that just say, I hate people. And Christmas is the announcement that God doesn't hate us. He loves us for the sake of Jesus. He has brought us to Jesus to make us aware of just the sheer bounty of his love toward us and Christmas trees and Christmas lights. Kubrick knew that, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And so I, I think that there really is almost nothing more beautiful or hopeful than Christmas and children understand that. And so I, it's such a wonderful time of year because adults get some inkling that may be the meaning of the whole thing. And uh, the best way to live really is the way that Jesus recommends in the gospels, which is like a little child. No dream is ever just a dream. Stanley Kubrick, eyes wide shut. If a prophet has a dream, let him tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak it faithfully. Jesus Christ, the Bible. Listening to a brief history of power, you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.